Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. So I actually think I want to count off-season shows this year. This is off-season show number three. I don't know why exactly. It feels borderline masochistic or maybe straight masochistic on this one. But I just, I want it to be like we're scratching, you know, like an old cartoon, old show, whatever it is. You're scratching the, the lines into the prison wall. We can do this. We can make it through the off-season Fantasy offseason. You guys know what I'm talking about. When I say offseason, I mean fantasy offseason. I know that there are playoff games going. We're going to talk about them. Don't worry. Give you a little betting primer on these things. And then we'll do our lesson learned number three. We've got a lot of lessons to go over. we got a lot of them. Today's going to be a retread. Just a warning. One you've heard before. But it's important to do it at the end of every single season. Because it pretty much lands every single season. And we need to remind ourselves why we operate the way we do. As far as the NBA goes, oh, hello, by the way. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today. This is a sports ethos presentation. I'm your host, Dan Bespris. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, everybody. Um, please stick with us through the offseason. I know that it, sometimes you're like, oh, I don't really, I don't have the, the gumption to listen to every NBA podcast all offseason long. That's fine. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. You're not going to listen to every single show, but listen to some of them, right? Some stick with us. Hang with us a little bit here as we go through ways to get better at fantasy basketball. The only time we really have to do this type of stuff is after the season ends when we can go back and look at all the data laid out before us and not have to worry about breaking down a whole bunch of stuff, 30, 40 minutes, trying to figure out who's got a rest of season value attached to their name. If you're in a playoff league, have at it. I am. I don't have the, I don't have the patience for that right now, but... As far as yesterday goes, Brooklyn beat Cleveland. No surprise there. Minnesota beat the Clippers in a tight one. We figured that would be a tighter ball game. I thought the Clippers would win that thing, and they kind of fell apart in the fourth quarter. Minnesota went on a 16-2 run midway through the fourth, and uh, Clippers couldn't quite get back over the hurdle. Paul George played well. Cat did not. But the Wolves got big performances from D'Lo and Anthony Edwards, and that was enough because the Clippers really didn't get much from anybody else. Reggie Jackson had 17 points, but it took him 18 shots to get there. They had 17 turnovers, committed a ton of fouls. Wolves shot 37 free throws, missed a lot of them. And then, and this is, Minnesota does this to everybody. They out-rebounded the Clippers 49-39. to uh, Honestly, I just thought someone else on the Clippers would step up a little bit, and uh, nobody did. So they lost. No surprise. Clippers have another shot at it, as do the Cavaliers, who covered... That was the big story there. They fell behind by a bunch, battled their way back into it. Give Cleveland a lot of credit for kind of hanging tough because Kyrie Irving was on 34 points on 15 shots. KD had a nice ball game. Nick Claxton saw big time off the bench because he can defend. Not a surprise there that Andre Drummond got sort of pushed aside when they needed somebody who could actually go play a little bit of defense. Nick Claxton is, a, is very much a name to watch for next year. You know, LaMarcus Aldridge, Andre Drummond, these guys are aging, slow. Claxton's the future there, and this, these playoffs might alert people to that. He had 13-9 and nine with five blocks. We've talked about it quite a lot, and you know we're going to apply this to the fantasy side a little bit, that Claxton needs starters' minutes to be fantasy-relevant because he's not the world's greatest rebounder at that center spot. He's still kind of 
slender. And then the Nets have guys like Bruce Brown, who's a sort of a big rebounding guard. Kevin Durant tends to be a pretty good rebounder out there. So it's not like the one guy, although Drummond maybe changes that narrative a little bit. It's not that one guy goes out and they expect him to get 11, 12 rebounds a game. But at Claxton's rate, he needs to play about 27, 28 minutes to get there. And then the free throws are a disaster. So you really need enough in the points, rebounds, and blocks department and field goal percent to cover up for the free throw stuff. But he's going to be an interesting, you know, maybe you draft him around 100 type of guy for next year and see what clicks. There's also the Ben Simmons thing. They may go very small for stretches next season. And then it might be Claxton that he might be your starting center that still only plays 24, 25 minutes a game. In any event. Uh, Cleveland will have the winner of Atlanta. Charlotte Clippers will have the winner of New Orleans and San Antonio. And we'll deal with that when we get there. As far as the games tonight, those games we just mentioned a moment ago, Atlanta. Uh, oh, by the way, we got the Clippers call wrong, but I did say lean to unders in everything and both unders hit. So there was that. And that's the way these, these winner take all type of games tend to end up going. I mentioned in playoff series, you do usually see them kind of start off where teams are not as locked in in game one. Everybody just sort of throws their fastball metaphorically, and then the adjustments start to kick in little by little things, and then they get to know one another, and totals do tend to drive down over the course of a series. But if you treat it, if you assume that these play-in games are going to function a little bit like a game seven of a playoff series, you would look towards unders. The only one that I'm surprised isn't a higher number is San Antonio, New Orleans at 224 and a half. Spurs have played crazy fast this year. So I'm not sure that I lean to the under as much in that one. Charlotte, Atlanta, 235 and a half. These are two really fast paced teams. And I think you're getting a gigantic total as a result. But the game is going to slow down, particularly in the second half. I like Charlotte catching almost five points. Hornets have been playing really well down the stretch. I know Atlanta's actually played pretty well down the stretch as well, but... We've seen the Hornets. They can compete with this Hawks team. Atlanta doesn't play a ton of defense, and so Charlotte is not going to go away. Game two, no real strong feel on the side or the total. I think I'd probably look towards the underdog, but I also don't know if I can fully trust whatever San Antonio is going to throw out there. New Orleans does have more firepower. Can the Pels play much defense? It's weird to bet on a, a favorite that can't defend all that well. So leans to the underdogs in the games tonight. I think I like Charlotte more than I like San Antonio. And slight lean to the under in that first game, the Atlanta-Charlotte contest. But, uh, yeah. All right. So, um, Hornets and under in the first one. Spurs and I don't know what in the second one. Totals actually dropped. It opened at 232, so I should probably throw that out there. And it's dropped almost eight points. So you probably wiped a lot of the value out of that one. There are also, I believe, question marks as to who might or might not be in that ballgame. But I think the big names are there. Interestingly, by the way, we did get a series price. Two series prices that came out overnight. Uh... The Nets opened as a minus-135 favorite over the Celtics, and it flipped immediately. A bunch of money came in on the Celtics as an underdog. 
Not a big surprise there. They're a better team. Now the Celtics are a minus 130 favorite. I'm not sure that there's a ton of value left on that Boston side, but I do still think they win that ballgame. Um, yeah, you know, the Nets, they're not going to stop anybody. Not that anybody can really stop Kevin Durant. He's either going to have a great game or he's not. But Boston can do a lot about basically everything else that the Nets want to do. And then on the other side, Minnesota and Memphis was the other series price that came out. Grizzlies are around a minus 400 favorite over the Timberwolves. I think there's actually a little bit of value on Minnesota there. That's a, that's a pretty big number. And Memphis probably does win that series. Maybe this is one where you look to try to find... Uh, an opportunity to bet both sides, depending on how it goes. Wolves are much, much better at home. I don't know that you'd take them at the start of the series here. Memphis probably takes the home opener. Maybe you look at Minnesota after game one or after game two. You can kind of bet into a series as it goes. Okay. Let's talk about lesson learned number three. And I'm not going to recap previous lessons. Sometimes I'll I'll try to you know, throwback to them as we go through additional ones. First two days this week, we're pretty heavily on league settings type of stuff. And today we're actually going to turn away from that a little bit to one that we do every single year. This is our, whatever you want to call it, you know, the annual memorial. <laughs> I don't know what proper terminology might be for it, but this is our once a year official don't draft Injured players, lesson learned. And we've got to do it every year because every year, someone, some ones, many some ones, come back and try to convince us. And this isn't necessarily a person. This is like an ethereal beyond being that tries to convince us this is the time. This is the year when there's going to be that guy that's worth taking a shot on. They're injured. We know they're injured to start the year. And it's going to pan out. And by the way, it's basically every year there is one guy where this thing works. There's always one guy where it works. Everybody knows. As Right when I'm talking about it right now, every single one of you is thinking of the one player where it worked this year. It's really easy to remember the player where it works. And this year, that player is Pascal Siakam, who, by all accounts, had a really good season. There's no denying that. He finished at number 31 by totals. He ended up playing in 68 out of their 82 games, despite starting the year hurt. Played 38 minutes a night and didn't have a number of little nicks and bruises the way that pretty much everybody else on that Toronto team did. He slipped through. He slipped through. There's no other way to look at it. Like, these Toronto players, they get hurt. They miss games because they play so many minutes. The the fact that Pascal Siakam not only started the year hurt, but still managed to get to within a couple games of 70 is remarkable. Freddie Van Vliet missed 17 games this year. Gary Trent only missed a dozen somehow, but he started the year hurt, and he only played 35 minutes a night. OG Ananobi played 48 minutes 
at th- or 48 games at 36 minutes a night. Scotty Barnes, rookie, thought he was able to take the pounding a little bit better than expected. Played 74 games, but Van Fleet 65, Siakam 68, OG 48. The guys that logged the biggest minutes, Trenton Barnes being the exception, missed games after starting the year healthy. The fact that, again, Siakam missed a few weeks to start the year and then was largely healthy the rest of the way, that is anomalous on a team playing their guys this many minutes. That's Toronto. That's the Nick Nurse thing, man. He's just going to take the injuries as they come, overplaying his guys. That's fine. It's great for fantasy purposes. Siakam was drafted around 60 in most leagues, and he finished in the 30s. So that's a nice value. I don't want to underplay how, you know, how useful it was to be able to draft someone in the fifth round that ended up as a third-round value. I will point out, however, that guys drafted in the fifth round this year You want me to read off some of the names of guys with an ADP between basically 48 and 60, effectively? I'll I'll read them all. I'll read the the list of all the winners in there. Time Lord, Darius Garland, Mikael Bridges, Anthony Edwards, DeJounte Murray was often going in that range, although sometimes he went towards the end of round four. Jonas Valanciunas was going in that range. Terry Rozier, Jared Allen, Pascal Siakam. There are some others. There are a couple of misses that floating around in there, like Nurk. Lonzo looked like he was going to be a hit, and then the injury stuff happened. Draymond Green kind of went in there a little bit. His injury derailed that as well. But there are a lot of wins in that, in that group where you didn't have to draft a guy who was injured to start the year. And some of them were bigger hits. DeJounte Murray was number six. That's not the point, though. Terry Rozier, number 20. Finished this year at 20. Mikel Bridges at 24. This is by totals, by the way. Time Lord, 25, despite missing the last month of the year. Almost. Anthony Edwards, 28. These guys actually finished ahead of Pascal Siakam by totals. And they weren't hurt to start the year. So just kind of making a an observation as to, you know, what is the trade-off here? And look, I get it. It worked. That's the point on a guy like Siakam. It worked. But... There were basically four big name players that we knew. What do you want to, I mean, I, you could split hairs on, I guess, what you want to call big name or not. But there were, I think, guys that you'd normally expect to be drafted probably inside the top 60 or higher that were hurt to start the year and they ended up moving around a little bit. Like Pascal Siakam probably would have been drafted near 35 or 40 if he wasn't hurt. He went near 60. And it hit. Zion Williamson probably would have been drafted in the second or third round. He was going in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Didn't play a game. Kyrie Irving probably would have been drafted in the second round. He was getting picked in the 80s, 90s range. It didn't hit. I mean, yeah, he got into some games near the end of the year, and he was good in those ball games. but he was number 151 in 30 games. The funny thing is, it wouldn't have taken that many more games for him to actually uh, hit his mark. But the headache of only getting 30 games out of a guy, of having him just, you know, load up a roster spot the entire year, would have been, that's not worth it either. Karis LeVert, I think, is the other one of the four. Siakam, Zion, Kyrie, Karis LeVert. Remember, he was dealing with something that... uh, I think it was a back. It was a back thing that popped up right before the year started. Stress reaction in his back. 
and that one didn't come close. Levert was number one, 63, missed games with every team he was with this year, didn't play well in Cleveland after the trade. Yeah, not close. So you've got three misses and one hit. So then a question I suppose becomes, you know, how often, because these are guys getting drafted in basically the seventh round, based on average, Siakam was earlier, you look at what is the average hit rate of a player in that draft area that isn't injured. And in the fifth round, the hit rate is still very high. You know, eight or nine out of the 12 players taken in round five this year turned out to be pretty good to very good on the season. Only Nurk and I guess Draymond. And then, you know, you can sort of pull in some guys on either side of that, depending on how far you want to extend the ADP. But Nurk, I would argue, was kind of the only one that didn't look like he was going to get close this year. And then, like, you can't really blame injury for that one. The other one's injury. Lonzo Ball, Draymond Green, things were going okay, and then Lonzo things were going great, and then injury set in. So the fifth round, if you're drafting an injured player in the fifth round, you're passing up on like a 70 to 80% hit. So that thing better land. Seventh round, it's not quite as obvious, and you can't just say, oh, here are the guys who went in the seventh round, because the ADPs get a little fuzzy at that point. Their numbers, ADPs or numbers, are floating around out there. Somebody might have an average draft position of, you know, pick 74. But that also means that they could go in 54 at some leagues, 94 in others. They're, like, the confidence interval of where they're actually going is not as localized. First round, second round, when you see an ADP of, like, 14, the guy's going pretty damn close to 14. When you see an ADP of 74, it's a wide spread. But I'll read you some of the names in a competitive league I'm in that went in the seventh round. Norman Powell, that one was a hit until he got hurt. Montrezl Harrell miss, Joe Harris miss, Rob Covington hit, Daniel Gafford, I don't even know what to call that one, semi, call it a miss, whatever, Jakob Pertl, big time hit, PJ Washington, that turned out a lot better after Gordon Hayward went down, Bogdan Bogdanovich hit, Buddy Heald hit, Zion, no, Wiggins hit, Mike Conley hit. So I would argue about half, maybe a tiny bit better than that. And if you want to look at 6th round, 8th round, if you go on either side of these things, the hit rate is actually relatively similar in those groups. 6th round, guys like uh, D'Angelo Russell, Jeremy Grant, Gordon Hayward, DeMar DeRozan actually was going in 5th, 6th round in a lot of spots. But then there's some misses in there as well. Uh, Kevin Porter Jr., I mean, I yelled at everybody not to draft that dude. Can't, I can't even count that one. Come on, we all knew that. I Listen, one of the lessons we're going to have at some point here during this stretch is don't draft guys that are bad in both percentages. They're just, they're like, they're so far down the board. Guys that are a net negative in both percentages. I think actually at the first one, the first player who's a negative in both percentages is Lonzo Ball. As you work your way down the board. And and free throws, he didn't take enough for it to matter. So the first real, the first like true negative in both percentages is Luka Doncic. And the only reason he's ranked inside the top 30 is because he's so hyper elite in points, threes, rebounds, assists, 
that he made up for the fact that field goal percent was at 45 and a half and free throw was at 74. But then once you get past Luka, it's actually another massive drop to get to the next guy who's actually like a legitimate negative in both. And it was OG Ananobi at 53. And then you start to get into it for a few different things like CJ McCollum, who weirdly forgot how to shoot free throws this year. He basically just, anyway, whatever. I don't want to get sidetracked by the fact that you don't see guys that are bad in both percentages inside the top 50, aside from Luka. Today's lesson is don't draft injured players. Because as we're looking right now, and we'll do this every single year, and we'll do it looking at the players that were obviously hurt to start the season. I'm talking guys where we figured they would miss weeks. Not days. Someone's like, oh, they're coming into season with a little bit of an ankle tweak. It's a little different than, like, Siakam had the shoulder stuff. I think it was shoulder this year. And Lavert had the back, and Kyrie had the vax, and Zion had the all things. Oh, Ben Simmons. How could I forget Ben Simmons? Where the hell did he get drafted? Eighth, ninth round. Didn't play a game. So I get it. Like, you're taking a swing on someone. But there's actually an additional downside. Obviously, the Ben Simmons one was a massive miss. But guys in the 8th, ninth round, the hit rate is a little bit lower. If I look at the 8th round, let's see, out of 12 picks there, Horford was a hit, Mitchell Robinson was a hit. I'm looking at this competitive league. Uh, Marcus Smart, Cade, Evan Mobley, and Wendell Carter Jr. So 6 out of the 12 picks in the 8th round were hits in this particular league. Ninth round, Jordan Poole... Sadiq Bey ended up being a hit for parts of the season. I don't know if we can count that one. Uh, Mo Bamba. Miles Bridges went in the ninth round in this league. But again, like that could be anybody between the seventh and tenth round. So ninth round, for whatever reason, this league was more like a 33% hit rate. So I get it. Once you clear top 100, these shots become a little bit easier to uh, to convince yourself of. But I would add one other wrinkle to the mix as to why you really don't want to take this shot. And the, the, the other wrinkle is, not only are you potentially getting a miss more often than not with these guys. Again, you know, this year we're talking one out of five was a hit, and it happened to be the guy who generally got drafted earliest among those five. If we just assume that all of these picks are going to happen between pick 60 and pick 110... And we assume that the hit rate in that range is somewhere between 30 and 60%. Who you're going to pick between 60 and, like, this is a wide spread here, so this is not the most mathematically accurate way to, to break it down. But if you assume that you're going to get a hit probably like 40 to 50% of the time with your pick in there, that's higher than the 20% hit rate on injured player this year. I would argue, too, that Siakam... Uh, tipped this thing in in a good direction more than usual. Usually you'll have like one out of seven or one out of eight. You might go two years without having a Siakam-style hit blended in with these injured players to start the year. Injured or vac, whatever, like the, the situation. Situationally stuff. I should call it guys who aren't expected to play for a few weeks to start the season. Situationally dependent. We always try to go on numbers on this show. We try to take the long-term winning approach. And if I said to you, without even knowing the breakdown, hey, if you make a pick straight up and you got about a 40% chance of it landing, 
Or you do this other thing, I don't even tell you what it is, and you got a 20% chance of it landing. Wouldn't you generally take the 40% one? But every year we get pulled. There's a seduction element because these are big names. You know, Ben Simmons is a much bigger name than TJ McConnell or, or Spencer Dinwiddie or Lou Dort or whoever the hell is going in the ninth round of your league. It's a way bigger name. Because if he plays, you're like, okay, well, great. This one's a guarantee if he plays. But that if Zion, is it a guarantee if he plays? Maybe. Kyrie was a guarantee if he plays. Siakamu was kind of a guarantee if he plays. Karis LeVert, there actually probably wasn't really a guarantee if he plays. But people love Karis for some reason. I mean, you know, the story is nice, but... The fantasy game hasn't really ever been all that fantastic. Uh, the point is, the names become so big, the injured names become so big that they counterweight all the downsides that we know are built into these guys. And so then it becomes mental gymnastics. How can I convince myself to take this player, even when I went into the draft today, guaranteeing I wasn't going to do this thing? Listen, I got suckered in. Uh, last year, two years ago, whatever. I think it was Kemba in Boston, where he was going around a hundred, and I thought, oh, I mean, what the, you know, my hundredth pick. What the hell does it matter at this point? But then, all the dead weight. That's the other real issue here. Ben Simmons not only was a miss if you took him, or Zion, maybe even a better better example of this. Not only was he a miss, but you sat on him. For three, four months before finally going, fine. Or Ben Simmons, you might have sat him in the whole damn year because it seemed like maybe he was going to get to play for Brooklyn after the trade happened. I cannot, and mathematically it's actually kind of hard to, to come up with a number for this, but I can't really detail to you how important it is to have all of your roster slots available in a given year. So, not only do you only have, let's call it generously, a 20% hit rate, on injured players to start the year. And I actually believe it's lower than that. But this year it was 20%, so we'll just go with that number. Not only do you only have a 20% hit rate on this, but also you are potentially sinking a roster slot for half to two-thirds to three-quarters potentially of your season. Other misses in this range, you know, Kelly Olynyk. We knew that was dead after three weeks. I'll take the hit on that one. I thought he was going to be better. I thought Detroit signed him to actually play him a little bit. Nope. Brooke Lopez, down with a back thing. We knew that one within two weeks wasn't going to work. Kendall, uh, Keldon Johnson, although he got better after the, the trade deadline, he was going in this range. Spencer Dinwiddie was going in this range. I didn't actually really want those guys. Maybe I should use someone that I might have been drafting in here. D'Anthony Melton. He was on and off. I don't think we can call that a miss, but he was very much a, a streamer type, depending on who was healthy. You knew that within... Actually, he was really good to start the year because Dylan Brooks was out. Uh, but when Brooks came back, we knew that Melton was someone who wasn't going to stick at that point. So none of these other names I'm bringing up here, the misses in this range, if you want to call them that even. I don't know that I'd call those guys true misses. Marcus Morris Sr., there's a true miss. He wasn't... I don't think he was even healthy to start the year. You knew it immediately. Immediately, it wasn't going to stick. Immediately. You got that roster slot back to pick up someone. I know a lot of leagues, Desmond Bain was on the wire. He got drafted in every one of my leagues, but in a lot of leagues, he was on the wire. Scotty Barnes was on some wires. 
believe it or not. There were good players floating around that you needed that roster slot for. And even as you work your way through the entire season, there were good players you needed that roster slot for. You needed it as guys, as six players on your team hit COVID, and then you were also sitting on Zion and Ben Simmons. Picking on those guys, but those are the guys that missed the whole year, so they get picked on here on this show. So do not draft injured players, because not only is it a low hit rate, but it also saps you of the ability to make moves to your team. That's a double whammy. I'd rather have someone that I know is going to be terrible four days into the season than someone with upside, whatever you want to call that, of Zion Williamson, who doesn't end up playing at all. Because you can't drop those guys. Once you invest in the big name injured long shot, you can't drop them. Because you're like, oh, well, what if I drop them? I'm going to kick myself. I'm going to kick myself if this thing comes around. If you drop Jay Sean Tate three weeks into the season, you aren't going to be that worried if someone else picked him up when he went on his top 80 run for two weeks. Nobody cares about that. Those guys are easy to kick on and off your roster. It's hard to punt someone like Simmons on and off your team. So that big name allure, it's going to come for us again next year. There are going to be four or five obvious guys that are hurt or out, whatever you want to call it, to start next season. Do not draft. Tomorrow, lesson number four, we'll talk more NBA play-in games on tomorrow's show as well. Remember today, uh, looking at the under and the underdogs in both ball games actually, and then I have no idea on the total in the second game. No clue at all. Might go 20 points over, it might go 20 points under. No idea. I'm Dan Baspers. This is Fantasy NBA Today. Have a great Wednesday, everybody. Talk to you tomorrow.